Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. In this week's episode from The Vault, Molly Haskell talks about her 2009 book, Frankly, My Dear, Gone with the Wind Revisited, published by Yale University Press. Haskell grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and studied at the Sorbonne. She came to New York in the 60s to work for the French Film Office. She wrote about movies for The Village Voice, Vogue, and New York Magazine. Without further ado, I want to introduce today's speaker. It's a wonderful topic. I can't imagine somebody I'd rather hear about on this subject than our Molly talking about Gone with the Wind. So here's Molly Haskell. Normally, if I'm talking about a film, I ask everybody how many people have seen this film. But in this case, I'll say... How many people have not seen Gone with the Wind? <laughs> no one. Well, I guess those who are immune to it are just not here today. So <laughs> I never would have undertaken or initiated this subject. I mean, the, uh, it was Yale University Press who, as you probably know, is doing a series called American Icons who approached me. The subject is just too fraught or, as most of the critics and reviewers and blurbers say, problematic. I do think the conversation is changing now, which is one of the reasons that it was sort of exhilarating to write about it. But in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was just cringe-inducing. We could not look at movies in which blacks were servants, much more so when they were slaves. In some ways, it was short-sighted, because what, we can maybe talk about this a little later, but what happened was a lot of blacks were deprived of jobs because the activism said no blacks is made, so this is television and movies, so then a lot of roles just went unfilled because of that. It was a whole sort of glorification of the South, the vision of the South as noble loser, Lessinger said the North gave the South in fantasy the victory it had lost in fact. And there was a strange sense, especially in Gone with the Wind, that nobody actually caused the war, therefore nobody actually won it. And Margaret Mitchell herself, she was brought up on Civil War stories. Her grandmother had a house that had just sort of been narrowly bypassed by Sherman. And all the relatives would sit around telling heroic stories. They had their war wounds. She was 10 years old before she realized the South had actually lost the war. So, so there is this kind of sense of the noble South. Margaret Mitchell herself was actually not a believer in the feudal system and the nobility of the lost cause. I think one of the, the greatest disservices to the film was the, you remember that prologue that starts it, which was written by Ben Heck, a little ditty, a poem. There was a land of cavaliers and cotton fields called the Old South. Here in this pretty world, gallantry took its last bow. Here was the last ever to be seen of knights and their ladies fair. 
of master and of slave. Margaret Mitchell hated this, and it's still there, and sort of symbolized what Hollywood did to her book, and of course, Tara itself, which was an old sort of rough farmhouse in the novel, became something that looked like David Selznick's palatial offices. In the movie, Lincoln Begins the War, Not the South, and it underscores this idea. Um, I think a more nuanced view has taken hold in recent years. Scholars of black cinema like Thomas Cripps and Donald Bogle have written about how, yes, it's true that none of the blacks in Gone with the Wind joined the Union forces. They were supine, passive, loyal to the master. However, there's a transcendent performance by, of course, Hattie McDaniel, who won the first Oscar ever awarded to a black and Butterfly McQueen and the, and the black males maybe less so, but these extraordinary performances. And, you know, and Hattie McDaniel came in for it at the time. I and mean, the, the NAACP challenged her because, again, this idea of black playing black maids and the servility of it. Uh, Walter White of the NAACP attacked her after she made this beautiful speech after she'd won the Academy Award. And she said, well, look, I'd rather get paid $700 playing a maid than $7 being one, which was what she had been. I mean, she had been a maid in life until she became an actress. So there's that. There's, a, there's sort of this to deal with, all the buttons of that, and, and reconstruction, because Margaret Mitchell really took her cue from Birth of a Nation and Griffith's view of reconstruction and sort of rampaging blacks and the threat of rape by blacks on whites. In a sense, this was the view of Reconstruction that was the reigning view by historians at the time, really. It was complete corruption. There was none of this Eric Foner and more recent historians that have given us the view that there was progress. They were in the legislature. There was the beginnings of education. But there's none of this, of course. One interesting thing is that the blacks in Breath of a Nation are much more aggressive, whereas the blacks in Gone with the Wind are much more passive. There's something to be said both for and against both of those. But I think actually the worst part of Gone with the Wind is the portrait of Reconstruction. It's the most bigoted and the most blind and the least historical because she was really very scrupulous historically. And most historians had found nothing to fault in, for most of the book. But the portrait of Reconstruction is completely biased and one-sided. And what she does is to put the most bigoted remarks in the mouths of the blacks rather than the whites. I mean, she has Manny talking about these free-running niggers. It's blacks who use these terms of disparagement, not white. So there was something duplicitous about the way she did that. Then the movie is so tied up for me, and I think for most people with adolescence. I mean, there's this image, everybody that call, I've been doing these call-in shows, and everyone calls in black and white, both women of all ages, talking about when they first read it, under the covers with a flashlight. I mean, this seems to be a near universal experience. So there's a kind of embarrassment about that. And I think part of it is, I think we knew it was sexy, but didn't quite understand it. And it was this whole sort of sense of the spectacle of black, uh, of, no, of, I said, this is interesting that I said black, because this is what Fiedler, I'll, I'll get to Leslie Fiedler in a minute, because he thinks the whole thing is about inter-ethnic rape and violence, that this is sort of subterranean thing going on, and that, that women say they applaud scholars' independence and this and that, but what really, it, what it's really all about is this fantasy of violation, a black violation on white. And I, I have reservations about that, but there's certainly some element of that in it. But there is this kind of sense of shame attached to it. In fact, it was so racy that both the book and the movie got away with an enormous amount. The book was 36, the movie 1939, the production code was in full force then. It got away with not only the marital rape scene, with the childbirth scene, which people were very upset about, and the Catholic Church tried to get toned down, the very harrowing childbirth scene when Melanie gives birth, the word damn, of course. There were all sorts of sort of forbidden things that got into it, largely because 
David Selznick's thoughts for them. It's kind of tied up with one's own adolescence and the, the sort of furtiveness and embarrassments of that, and also it has no cultural respect. So it's not even a guilty pleasure. I mean, film comment started this thing, guilty pleasures, a few, some years back, and hip directors and writers would send in their list of guilty pleasures, and they were all these kind of grungy uh, B-pictures by uh, low-budget directors, but they had this kind of snob value, whereas Gone with the Wind is really a guilty, guilty pleasure. It's not an acceptable guilty pleasure the way these were, and it got no respect at the time and still doesn't from the literati or the cinephiles. Malcolm Cowley was probably the most quoted in the years that followed and sort of representative of the sort of intellectual left and what they thought of it. And he just thought it sort of embodied every, every plantation fantasy. He says, it is all here, every last bale of cotton and bushel of moonlight, every last full measure of southern female devotion, working its lily-white fingers uncomplainingly to the lily-white bone. And so this isn't true, for one thing, especially the part about the women. But this was a time when there were a lot of very popular women writers, Vicki Baum, Adela Rogers St. John, Fanny Hurst, all these women were writing bestsellers, women scribblers in Hawthorne's terms, and I think the male literary bastion felt threatened by them. And Margaret Mitchell's book, it was selling at its height, 3,500 copies a day. I mean, nobody had ever seen any, I don't think anything like that has ever happened before or since. So there was a huge kind of resentment at its popularity. And this is Cowley was quoting the press releases and ridiculing them. It was the whole, that sort of male-female thing came out. Carolyn Gordon's book, None Shall Look Back. I don't know if any of you have read that, but that came out about the same time. And everyone said, this is much more literary than Margaret Mitchell. It was praised in sort of because it had these male virtues, battle scenes. It had these wonderful battle scenes like McKinley Cantor. It is more literary than Gone with the Wind, for sure, and it's more nuanced in its description of the social, the clans and the society. But who reads it today? And even the reviewer, and this is a woman reviewer for the New York Times, said, well, there are no characters that you remember. And this is what Margaret Mitchell had. She had these, these bold, and even, even Cowley conceded that she told a story like it had never been told before. I mean, he was sort of giving with one hand and taking away with the other. And he said, this myth does have a hold on us, this feudal myth. Part of him understood what it was all about, and the other just felt compelled to kind of dismiss it. There were quite a few literary critics who did acknowledge that it was a well-told story, not only a well-told story, but historically accurate and exciting. And I think the way they dismissed it was by calling it women's fiction and romantic fiction, but it is differentiated from that in, in really interesting ways, which I'll get to when I talk a little bit about Margaret Mitchell. But the film critics were just as bad. I mean, the film critics and Andrew Sarris, who's the author of The American Cinema and The Pantheon, the book that came out in 1968, and holds up pretty well. What's interesting is that 1939, of course, was the banner year for films, and he has this list of the copies of John Ford. These, these are all listed in order of preference by the auteurs. You know, this was the politique's auteur at its height and the idea of the directors being sort of the visionary author of the film. So the approved directors were all those directors whose vision did inform that film, which were directors' films, like the films of John Ford or Lubitsch. Ninochka came out that year. Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And on and on and on. And down number 13 is Victor Fleming, Gone with the Wind, and uh, The Wizard of Oz. Part of this was polemical, I think. But on the other hand, this is very strange, but this is a man who saw Gone with the Wind 44 times. <laughs> it, was, it was Vivian Lee, so there was a kind of clash between the, the heart and the head even then. But, um, and people thought of it, and, and, and justifiably, as one, what one critic called 
of the Supreme custom-built movie because it was put together of so many parts. It wasn't formed by a single vision, and yet that's not quite true either. As well, if I want to talk about what I, why I think it succeeded, uh, it's continued to enrapture in many ways. Graham Greene, who, like a lot of the early critics, was analyzing the medium, trying to figure out what it was, said that we have to accept popularity as a virtue. And the other thing he said, he described not Gone with the Wind, he never, I don't know that he ever wrote about Gone with the Wind, but he said some films are like sporting events, they seem to have been made by the spectators rather than shown to them. And there was a sense in which the public was in on the making of Gone with the Wind, largely because Selznick, it was sort of le public c'est moi, he identified so with his public and with the readers, and he was going to be faithful to the readers and all of that. Just one word, too, about its success in so many different areas and with so many different people. In Europe, the book and the movie were banned by Goebbels as being insurrectionary. So they were out of circulation. So nobody saw them until 45, 46. And when they did, the French just embraced it. And Olivia de Havilland said it was like it was the story of the war and survival. So the people who saw it right after the war saw it as a story of loss and suffering and war and survival. And other countries and other tribes saw it as resistance to political oppression. Of course, always the South is the noble, valorous victor or the, the morally superior. But then they didn't have the baggage that we had. I think they could watch it and have been able to in a more uncomplicated way because they didn't have the historical baggage. There are stories about Ethiopian prison where it was smuggled in and it gave them, I mean, the whole idea of this Margaret Mitchell thing of gumption. That was her, her, her key word. And that's the people with the brains and the courage survive. It was a very, I guess, not Darwinian. We now know that that is social Darwinism, which is Spencer, not Darwin. But that was basically, that was what Ashley did not have. So the, the people identified with this. They all saw this and responded to it. And then in America, they saw it. This was in 1939, with the depression was leveling off. But all the cards and the preview audiences wrote about it as a depression fable. All of them saw it as this, and women responded to it this way because during the Depression, women had borne a huge burden. Men had been out of work, and yet women had been fired, let go in jobs like teachers and other jobs because they felt it was because men were out of work. Men had to be boosted. Women had to, had to be brought home. And yet here was this woman who had been masculinized by the war, who had to struggle, and, and women. So women just responded to this wholesale as a depression fable. There were so many different points of entry, and there have been over the years, and some of the themes have faded. Ashley, maybe, <laughs> Leslie Howard, maybe, other, and other parts of it, the Southern myth, and other things have surfaced. One of the things of Scarlett, what she does after the war, of course, she starts her own business. She buys these mills, and she's hugely successful, and it's very threatening to everybody. And even when she doesn't need to do it anymore, she keeps on doing it. I mean, in some ways, she's the kind of precursor of material girls of today, of, of the sort of Madonna survivors of the Sex and the City, because she becomes quite a shopaholic when she's let loose in Atlanta with a little money. She loves working, and she's a smart businesswoman. And if women today knew as much about mortgages as Scarlett did, they wouldn't be so many out on the street. So there's a kind of sort of amazing modernity to a lot of what she is. One of the things I could have done is write an extended essay, which is, I guess, what this series is supposed to be, but I somehow couldn't, and also because I had fled the South and had fled all of the issues of the Civil War and the post-Civil War and civil rights. I felt too much out of step, and yet I had a love for the place, too, so what was the solution to leave and never look back? So now was a chance to look back in the, uh, over the distance of time, so that appealed to me, too. 
one of the things that struck me is the strange overlapping madness, in a way, of three people, Vivian Lee, David Selznick, and Margaret Mitchell. They were each, in fact, diagnosed at some point in their lives as manic depressive. They were wildly driven in ways that intersected. Selznick was completely manic. He was on Benny's and gambling and eating peanut butter and up all night. And he was a kind of disorganized perfectionist, as one person called him. He had to be involved in every aspect of the production. And he also loved women. I mean, this is something that's sort of unheard of in, in Hollywood today. He was a fetishist when women concerned. Olivia de Havilland tells a story of trying on different costumes, and there was one that seemed perfect, and it had this and that and four, four ruffles, and she took it in to show Selznick, and he approved of it. And then as she was walking out the door, he said, take off one ruffle. He, he was just that obsessed, and he was trying to get Margaret Mitchell involved, and she didn't want any part of it, because at this point, she trusted Selznick, because he had done these wonderful adaptations of literary works, and she knew he would be as faithful as it was possible to be to her book, and also because it was a bestseller, and, he was, he, and because of this rapport that he felt he had with the public. He didn't want to betray the public. So he was about the best that she could have, but she knew Hollywood in sort of full nostalgia mode, and she didn't trust it. And by this time, she wanted only to be a member in good standing of Atlanta society. So she wanted complete deniability where the film was concerned. But she had a spy. She had a mole on the set. She had proposed this woman, Susan Myrick, who was a reporter for one of the Atlanta, uh, one of the Georgia papers and needed some work a smart woman, so she somehow got Selznick to employ her. So she was on the set helping with coaching accents and helping with dress, and she would write these little reports to the newspaper telling how wonderful everything was and what a great southern accent Clark Gable had. Of course, that had to be dropped very soon. But she was telling Margaret Mitchell more the real story, so Mitchell was finding out what was going on as it was happening. But at one point, Selznick wrote her. He would fire, of course, these memos and telegrams, fired off multiple things. Another thing that she and Selznick had in common was just logoria. I mean, both of them, after she wrote Gone with the Wind, she never wrote another book, but she wrote letters and letters. And everyone who had wrote, she wrote a thank you note, which meant three pages to everyone who reviewed the movie. Everyone who wrote to her, she wrote to them. And, of course, Selznick, his whole life was in memos. But he sent her a frantic telegram saying, how do we tie Mammy's bandana? And Margaret Mitchell wrote back, I'm not going out on a limb over a head rag. You know? <laughs> Selznick also increased Hattie McDaniel's part. He knew what she'd done in movies, and by this time she'd been playing sassy maids who took no grief from their employers. He put more humor into her role. He boosted it. He improved it. The other thing he did was to fire Cukor and hire Victor Fleming. Now, in auteur terms, Cukor is way above Victor Fleming. But in this case, what Cukor had done, he had directed four of the best scenes in the movie, I think. The childbirth scene, the one where Scarlett and Olivia de Havilland kill the Yankee intruder and get rid of him and several others. And the one where um, Nanny is dressing Scarlett to go to the barbecue at 12 Oaks. And they're wonderful. And I mean, they really do repay repeated viewings, unlike maybe some of the other scenes in the film. There is something nuanced and gestural in them that maybe is not in the others. But he was not a director of ethics. He and Selznick had done Little Women and very stylish women's films. And there were other considerations to nobody as a whole story, but he fired him, and the two women pleaded with him not to because they loved him. He was a woman's director, but Clark Gable supposedly did not like him because he was one of the few openly gay directors in Hollywood, and Clark Gable wanted a man's director, somebody who would be more sympathetic to him. So Victor Fleming came in, who was a kind of action guy. In fact, in this new biography by Michael Stradwell, he says that Victor Fleming was actually the model for Clark Gable because he was a real swaggering ladies' man, and Clark Gable was 
just didn't quite know who he was, and he was shaped just as much as any of the women by the Hollywood sort of emulsification project. So he was made into a kind of Victor Fleming, and he felt very comfortable with Fleming. And I think in some curious way, the combination works here, where, I mean, it, it's sort of unheard of. It's too many cooks. I mean, there were too many cooks. There were 15 screenwriters, which is another no-no, and including F. Scott Fitzgerald at one point. Sidney Howard was the official screenwriter, and I think he did do most of it. And Selznick was another uncredited screenwriter who caused a lot of harm. It was a kind of yin and yang with the women would go to Kukor and get coaching from him, and Vivian Lee would go to battle every day. The interesting thing was Clark Gable really did not want to do the part. It was way out of his comfort zone. He said to John Lee Mayen, who was a friend and screenwriter for him, he said, I've never done a movie where the woman doesn't look at me right away and want me to want to go to bed with me. So here was this woman who not only didn't want to go to bed with him, but keeps him at arm's length for the whole movie. And it was very hard for him to do. He was very insecure. He, he knew he wasn't a great actor, and yet the whole world wanted him in this role. And he didn't have a choice. He was at MGM, that the deal was made with MGM for him to do it. But there's a scene in which he had to cry, and he didn't want to do that in the worst kind of way. And Fleming said, okay, let's try it this way and the other way, and if you don't like it, we won't use it. And he did it, and they used it. And he gave up the, the delicacies in his performance that are in no other film that he did, and I think wouldn't have been there if he hadn't had this person that he trusted on the set. Because actually it is a very passive role when you think about it. But one of the reasons it doesn't come across as a pure woman's film, and there are others, with just the women dictating everything and the man is an almost supernumerary, is because of Clark Gable and the virility that he represents, even if he's not actually the agent as she is. And so all these strange elements came together to make it something more than just a woman's film. And Vivian Lee, we have this story of her being discovered by Selznick. They had actually started shooting the movie without anyone to play Scarlet. And they had to do the film at the burning of Atlanta. They had finally gotten all the Technicolor cameras. It was just terrifying. People across the way in Los Angeles thought it was a real fire. They were packing their bags and leaving town. <laughs> and Selznick was up there on this platform, and Myron, his brother, the agent, shows up with Larry Olivier and Vivian and says, I've got your Scarlet. And there was Vivian Lee and the her eyes reflecting the flames, and he knew he had it. It was a sort of Pygmalion fantasy, and it wasn't at all. Vivian Lee read the book, loved it, said, I have got to do this role. She burned every bridge. She paid her own way. Olivier was in Hollywood doing Wuthering Heights, and she paid her way, said to Myron, just cast her own agent and her husband and child aside, and said, I want to do this role. Introduce me to David Selznick, and that's how she got it. She gave so much more to it than anyone else. Of course, she was on screen the whole time. And meanwhile, she was madly in love with Olivier. And Selznick was a taskmaster. He would not let her go. There's a funny thing where in the first scene on the veranda where she's with the Charlton twins, for some reason, they hadn't gotten that scene right. They shot it and shot it, and they hadn't got it right. So they thought, well, we'll wait till the end of shooting. And so the very last day of shooting, they did it again. And he said, no, she was much too haggard and tired looking, which she was. She was exhausted. So he said, go off and have some R&R &R and come back. So she went off and she had a very strong libido, and especially where Olivier was concerned. So they would have these weekend marathons. So she went off of this weekend marathon with Olivier and came back and looked dewy and virginal, and <laughs> they did the scene on the porch. But she was sick with, as yet, undiagnosed. So she, was gonna get, she would get tuberculosis later, manic depression, miscarriages. She was really very, very sick psychologically, and this was all brewing. And the illnesses plus... The frantic desire to be with Olivier is one of the driving forces in her. And there is something just on the edge 
And also it was important to get somebody, I think Selznick knew this, who wasn't a Hollywood star. He wanted somebody, number one, he didn't want it to be a Katherine Hepburn film or a Betty, of course, Betty Davis wanted, was the one who everyone thought. She wasn't actually a Catholic. Paulette Goddard and Joan Bennett were the real runners-up. But he didn't want it to be one of their films. He wanted a Selznick film. And also they would probably wanted, have wanted to tone it down in some way. I mean, Norma Shearer was a candidate at one point, and her fans just wrote in and said, you can't do this. You're just not a nice person. You're too nice to play this. So an unknown could come without all this baggage, and Vivian Lee allows herself to look ugly and ravaged and mean and waste. When you see screen tests and Paulette Goddard trying to do it, she always looks like she's play-acting mean, whereas Vivian Lee really gets it. And I think she would have been a great movie actress, but she gave up her movie career to be with Olivier and to win his approval as a stage actress. Margaret Mitchell was born in 1900. She was a kind of bright bully. She was very smart, and she didn't get along with her own age group. Her mother was an activist suffragette, which was very unusual for that time and in that place in Atlanta. Her mother was an academic. Margaret was not. Her mother would pay her a dime to read Dickens or Tolstoy or the, the approved novels, and Margaret, when she was old enough, would read pornography. She had a huge library of Havelock Ellis, so she loved all this stuff, and partly this was just sort of in your face to her mother, but she really loved it, and she was interested in psychoanalysis. She went to Smith for one year. Her mother died young, interestingly, just like Ellen O'Hara in the book. Her mother was an activist and a do-gooder, and she was out helping in 1918 of the, the flu epidemic and caught the flu from somebody she was tending, just as Ellen O'Hara was sick and, and died from tending the flattery. Margaret came back and said she was actually happy to get away from Smith, though she said later that she actually had wanted to study and become an analyst. She was not an academic. She came home, and then she sort of came into her own as a flapper, and she had some wild years. Another parallel thing was she and Lee were both Anglo-Irish and both had been debutantes and rebels. She went to a dance where she danced inappropriately, and the Junior League then mixed her forever at joining the Junior League. And when Gone with the Wind, the premier came, and the Junior League threw a huge ball, she refused to go. So she had this huge rebel side to her. Also, she wrote for the Atlanta Journal, began to be very interested in the women not of her mother's but of her grandmother's generation, the ones who'd lived through the Civil War, and felt that she really was more at home in that time and with those people than she was in her own. And I think it's one of the things that gives it such immediacy because it doesn't feel like period, which is so unusual, I think, for historical romance and for Hollywood movies. I mean, period is very hard, particularly for Americans to do, though the major part of the cast was British, but she felt that so intense. She was so much into that. Then she had a series of, she'd always been a bit of a hypochondriac, plus had had a, a series of bad fall, horseback riding falls. So she married two men. To me, the, one of the most interesting things about Gone with the Wind is how unromantic Margaret Mitchell was. And David Selznick was the romantic. He's the one that changed the ending, so it had more of a kind of uplift. But she was very anti-marriage, so she did marry twice. The first one was a, a bounder and bootlegger, very similar to, if not as attractive as Rhett Butler. She actually took him to court for some kind of battery and possible rape. Her next husband was a milquetoast, but a very sweet guy and a good editor, named John Marsh, who worked for the Electric Power Company. They had no children. She was anti-children. In fact, one of the interesting things, Scarlett is unsympathetic enough in the movie, but in the book, she only has one child in the movie, but in the book she has three, and she's a horrible mother. She drinks while she's pregnant. Another similarity with Becky Sharp, who is the person that a lot of critics compared her to, though Margaret Mitchell swore that she had not read 
Thackeray before she wrote it. And then she does a kind of about face. So she hides away writing this book in the 20s. She worked for the Atlanta paper and then had the accident and was homebound. So John started bringing her all these books, and she loved doing research anyway. Started writing the book in secret, was writing it during the late 20s. So she was not writing during the Depression, which was one of the interesting things. But when it came out, and it didn't come out until 36, it was seen as a Depression. But she wrote and she swore that Melanie was supposed to be the heroine. And you always have to take what she says with a grain of salt. But the fascinating thing about Scarlett is how unusual she is almost in any terms. Because in 1937, and I just happened to be looking at Dark Victory recently, and it just struck me because it's the same year or the year before 38. And then Jezebel, no, I guess it's 39, Jezebel, 38. Betty Davis playing these two headstrong, spoiled women, Catherine Hepburn later in Philadelphia story. There seemed to be an appetite at that time for headstrong women who get their comeuppance, who are brought to heel, and Scarlett sort of fits into this. And yet what's different about Scarlett from these others is she pays. She, there are consequences, and yet she's never brought to heel in that sanctimonious way that movie heroines are. She is unrepentant at the end. She never does this kind of about face where she expresses guilt and sorrow. She's guiltless. She's completely guiltless. Because she writes this woman who is a rebel and a renegade, and she creates this Brett Butler who no one could see as anyone but a Clark Gable. And then suddenly she wants to become a conventional member of Atlanta society. After they're making the movie, she just wants to retreat into her privacy. And she writes a letter to David Selznick saying, we here, it's sort of the royal southern we now, we down here don't think Clark Gable is right for the part. I mean, of course he's wonderful and this and that and the other, but he's not a genteel, aristocratic southerner. We see Basil Rathbone, <laughs> Frederick March, or Ronald Coleman. And it's so wild because then you read this prose, this pulpy prose. I mean, she, she has wonderful, I mean, the pulpy stuff is just like any sort of rom the romance fiction, the cliche of women's romance fiction where his rippling muscles rip against the well-tailored, I mean, it's always the well-tailored versus the rippling muscles. And you try to think of Basil Rathbone in this role. It's like she completely forgot what she'd written or disavowed it. It's like when Rhett in the end is leaving Scarlet. She abandons Scarlet in some sense. And that's why she suddenly becomes the big supporter of Melanie, and who I think actually is a more interesting character than maybe people are giving her credit for. But this is now the heroine in her eyes. Scarlet is disavowed. Her own, the Scarlet, her inner Scarlet is disavowed. So when Rhett says goodbye at the end, it's Margaret Mitchell also saying goodbye. And yet in some way, I think people don't quite believe it, and it's why there's been this huge hunger to have sequels and prequels and follow-ups where they get together in the end, even though it's something Margaret Mitchell refused when they actually asked her. People at Macmillan said, well, can't you make it a little more hopeful? She said, oh, I'll do whatever you want, but I won't make it a happy ending. So she absolutely didn't want that, and she was herself an opponent of marriage. And I think this is what is intriguing and maybe in some sense one of the reasons why it does last is because there's something unresolved about it. Just as she said once that Appomattox never settled anything and Gone with the Wind doesn't settle anything. There's all this sexual intention and hostility and interesting frustrated desires that are never quite brought home in the way that, say, women's fiction or women's romantic fiction usually does. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.